Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. This time, one man's quest for peace in Israel and Gaza. We're talking to Udi Goran, whose cousin Tal Haimi was kidnapped by Hamas after a terrorist attack on the kibbutz where he lived on the day that war broke out. Hamas committed terrible atrocities, including the slaughter of unarmed young people attending a music festival. But more than 3,700 people have died as a result of Israel's retaliation, the bombing and siege of Gaza, which Palestinians regard as a war crime because it is a collective punishment upon a civilian population. Let's speak now to Udi. Udi, before we start exploring some of the politics of this, just tell me what we know about Tal's current situation. Sure. First of all, thank you, Adrian, for having me on the show and letting me speak of behalf of Tal and the family, and actually all the families of those who can't speak right now. Tal, in the morning of the attack, it was 6.30 in the morning when the first sirens blew off in the kibbutz where all of my mother's family lives. And they're already, they already know the drill, so they immediately ran to the bomb shelters. But what was different this time, that a few minutes later, they got notice that there were people trying to infiltrate the kibbutz. And the kibbutz is prepared for such an event, and there's an emergency squad. Tal was a part of this squad, also his brother-in-law is a part of this squad, and they, without hesitation, left the safety of their home and went out, took their weapons, and then the squad, which is eight people, divided into pairs. Each pair covered a part of the perimeter of the kibbutz. Near the entrance gate to the kibbutz, there was something going on. They didn't really know what. And a first pair was sent over there. They were both killed. The terrorists on purpose started a fire to attract people to come there and then went away so they could look into the scene but wouldn't be seen. And the first pair that went there uh, was shot and killed. Three people out of the squad was, was were killed. And then Tal and his brother-in-law went there as well. And that's when... We lost touch with them. That's the last Tal's wife has heard from him. So far, Tal's body hasn't been recovered. The family checked in all the hospitals. He's not there. He's not in any of the lists that the the army holds. And his phone was last traced to southern Gaza, southern the southern part of the Gaza Strip. So for that reason, our hope is that Hamas, the, the people that came into the kibbutz, didn't bother with carrying a body with them and that he is still alive along with his brother-in-law and that they are held captive. And as I mentioned in my introduction, there is no question that the actions of Hamas on that day in which your cousin was captured were atrocities. They were vile, evil murders. What do you think of Israel's response to those atrocities? I don't judge killing of civilians by their nationality. By definition, a terrorist attack is a military operation carried against civilians. And it doesn't matter who they are. So I hold myself to the same moral standards that I expect everybody else to hold. Now, I will say this, in the first several hours, or actually in the first several days of this attack, 
Israel was at chaos. It was complete mayhem. And there was a very immediate sense of emergency of not just people fearing for their lives. We're talking about entire towns destroyed to the ground, burned down, massacres. We're talking about uh, a severe response to a catastrophe. So in that regard, you know, there's really nothing I can say. I, I wasn't in the, in the op room carrying out decisions in the first uh, several days. I will say we are not at that point anymore. We haven't been at that point since day five or so. And right now, the situation is contained. Israel has the upper hand. And we are at a crossroads. And, you know, Prime Minister Sunak came to Israel in a very, very much appreciated gesture, standing in front of cameras and saying, we stand by Israel, we support you, we have your back, which is wonderful. He also added, Israel has the right to defend itself, which is what the world leaders that support us always say, which I couldn't agree more. Of course, we have the right to defend ourselves. Of course, Israel has to take care of its, its civilian population. We are no longer defending. We're now on the offense. And you could argue that now the next step of defending our civilian population is going on the offensive and making sure that the attacks stop. But at that point, the responsibility moves to our side because now we're the ones firing missiles. And you've mentioned 3,700 dead Gazans, the vast majority civilian, and un thinkable amount of children. And I can't say I approve. You know, in, when I'm talking to you in my mind, you know, I have my Israeli friends sitting right here. And right now there's calls for revenge, flat out revenge in Israel. People that have known, you know, for years, friends, acquaintances, people who are peaceniks, who are leftists, who are very firmly against this government are saying things that I I can't I can't even I, I won't repeat them, but I can't believe they're saying. And I understand why. I mean I can understand the sentiment. What we've seen are scenes worse than the stories we've been told about the Holocaust. The state of Israel was founded in light or in the shade of the Holocaust. And what I grew up with, and you know, the entire country grew up with, is that these atrocities will never ever return. And what Hamas did is, you know, just stab us in the stomach, in the softest spot possible, waking up all the most primal, basic fears that every Israeli has, like they've touched all the right buttons to make sure that we are so enraged, so vengeful, so hurtful, that there's really no, it seems like there's no place for reason. And this is understandable when it comes to the civil society, you know, when, when it comes to people, people shout out whatever they shout out. And, and, and that's fine. I understand it. From leaders, I expect different things because that's their role. Their role is to lead, is to listen to the people. But then their main role in life 
is to make sure that we are better off. That's their job. That's their job as civil servants. And they should listen to what people say and they should make decisions according to what's right. And I don't feel that our current government, who has failed us miserably, and I'm being very generous with this description right now, is making decisions with the thought in mind that is what's in our best interest, in Israel's best interest. And I don't see how in any way this utter devastation of Gaza is in our interest, in my personal interest. I'm not even talking about morality, which I've made it very clear that I care about. I'm not even talking about this. I don't understand how killing so many people is in our interest. Entire neighborhoods are bombed, are flattened out. You know, the new wave of refugees that we are now creating is the next generation of Hamas. We are now creating the soldiers of Hamas, the, you know, what we call terrorists, what other people can call freedom fighters. It doesn't matter what we call them because these people would come with a vengeance to do the same thing again against us. And just as Jews talk about the Holocaust, many Palestinians, and these will not all be Hamas supporters by any stretch, talk about the Nakba, the catastrophe that fell upon their people as a result of the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, which led to the dispossession of many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. So that when they hear the Israeli government telling them they must leave their homes, they must flee, because of an impending Israeli attack, they see also the repetition of a cycle of history. And that is one of the dangers, isn't it, of Israel's response. Palestinians who have a historical grievance against the state of Israel now having a fresh grievance against the state of Israel and a grievance inflamed perhaps by the death of one or more than one of their loved ones. I'll say two things about this. One is that the Nakba is a narrative that's very much alive in the Palestinian society. It's very much there. If you go and you visit Palestine, you would see symbols of them, of it. You would see the main symbol is the key, which they hold, the key to their house, which is in the territory, which is now Israel. And this is a huge problem, which we've never addressed. Israel has never addressed this problem of Palestinian refugees properly. As to what's happening now and, you know, saying that there is an intention here in creating a second Nakba and taking over the northern Gaza Strip, I don't really know how to comment on this. And and I'll say why, because first of all, I don't think there's a plan. Netanyahu is not a long-term thinker. He responds. As far as I'm concerned, and as far as I've known him, and as far as I've seen his actions throughout the year, he has one concern in mind, and that's staying in power. And then every time something's, something comes up, he puts out the fire, makes it in a, in a way that it works for him, and then just carries on. And there's never a long-term vision to what's supposed to happen, to what Israel is doing. Now, this government has been 
very heavily influenced with the extreme right, the Kahana followers, the Kahana Chai followers, uh, Bitzalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, who their party members are openly saying, we even before this war, they openly said we need to go back to Gaza. We need to take over the Gaza Strip. It's a part of the of the Promised Land, and they keep saying even that yeah, it would cost many lives, but it's worth it. It's the promise from God, and we must fulfill it. In a very backwards way, what's happening now is fulfilling their vision. A hundred percent. It started by Hamas. I do want to point this out in this specific discussion. Israel didn't start this war. It doesn't matter what intentions were set ahead of time. Israel didn't start this war. The way it's being managed and hundreds of thousands of people evacuated from their home and their homes destroyed and now talking about the ground invasion. I don't know. I, I really don't know. And Netanyahu and the government or the chief of staff of the, or the minister of security, they don't suggest any vision. We don't know what's going to happen after the ground invasion. Let's pretend we've killed every Hamas terrorist in Gaza. Th- then what? The IDF is embedded in Gaza. Then what? We go back to the occupation of Gaza. We, we control Gaza. We start managing Gaza. Who's, what's next? And this is exactly what President Biden referred to. And I feel he did this. And the reason he came to Israel is that I have a sense that he knows that this show is not being run properly and there is no long term vision. And he clearly stated to the cameras, think about the day after, because if we go into Gaza and we take over the northern part of the Gaza Strip, the consequences The casualties that would follow the war, and I'm not even talking about all the soldiers that would die in this incursion. I'm not talking about all the civilians, the Gazan civilians that would die in this incursion. I'm not talking about the Israeli civilians that would die while we keep fighting and missiles are being launched. I'm not talking about the hostages, my cousin included, pregnant women included, children under five included, elderly with their caretakers included, I'm not talking about all these people. I'm talking about the people who would die afterwards. When we keep the Gaza Strip and we have the IDF permanently there, that is an even bigger catastrophe. My generation is almost the last one to serve in Gaza before we got out of there. And the people of my age who served there describe being there as as a soldier, as hell on earth. Comparisons have been drawn with the United States and 9-11. Again, a horrendous terrorist atrocity and the response, which in the eyes of many people was hugely disproportionate, which in some instances amounted to war crimes and which mired the United States, the UK and other Western powers in bloody wars that cost countless lives over many years. Do you see a parallel between that and Israel's response so far? Um, Yes and no. I see the parallel. Again, I'm referring to what President Biden said. He said, our response to 9-11 
in our response to 9-11, we made many mistakes. And, and of course, he's right. It cost, if I remember correctly, more than 50,000 U.S. soldiers that died in Afghanistan and Iraq. And when they withdrew, what changed? Nothing. So I definitely draw the parallel. But, you know, Israel and Palestine is very different from this because, you know, the, the U.S. incursion into Iraq and Afghanistan had the starting point, had an endpoint. Now we know it had an endpoint. And, and that was kind of it for now. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been going on. It depends on when you want to start counting, but at least 150 years. And in, since the foundation of Israel, obviously, tensions have risen. And then we saw countless rounds of major violence culminating in Saturday of, of last week. And this is where I don't draw the parallel, because with Israel-Palestine, we know the outcome. We know the repetition. We know the cycle. We know what's happening since we evacuated from Gaza. At first, it was every other year. Then it became every year. Now it's several times a year when we have some kind of, of violence. We have missile launches. We have ground attacks. We have whatever. And there is absolutely no reason it would change. I haven't seen a single reporter ask any of the Israeli or American or British representatives that spoke to cameras when they say, "Let's, we need to win this, we need to take down Hamas, how are they going to do it? What does it even mean? Breaking it down to what does it mean to take down Hamas? Because Hamas right now is everything. It's the government, it's the education system. They're responsible for infrastructure, they're responsible for construction, they're responsible for international affairs, they're everything. They have all the resources. They're the ones communicating with the world. So what does it mean? What, what does it actually mean? The wording, taking down Hamas. What, are we going to kill every single person who ever expressed the word Hamas? Who are we chasing? We're going to destroy every one of their headquarters. Fine. What's the problem? We ourselves say that they're hiding in between the civilian population. Fine, they'll take another apartment and turn it into a headquarters. We kill one of their chief generals. All right, so the next in command would, would go up. They said that they've recruited in the past year 4,500 people. I believe them. I believe them because the stated policy of Israel and the Western world, and I include the U.S. and the U.K. and the U.N. and the E.U., the stated policy was, okay, we're going to have one round of violence. Israel is going to attack, destroy many, many houses, many buildings, headquarters, missile launch sites, and then and so on. And then we're going to dump a bunch of money over this. But we're going to give this money to Hamas. Why? Because they're the government and they control Gaza. So then Hamas, again, has control over all the resources, over all the smuggling tunnels, over everything who doesn't have any control over anything is the civilian population, which has so many restrictions, not just from Israel, but also from Hamas. Because if we say, and this is said out in the open by Israel and the U.S., if we say that Hamas is a terrorist organization, both on, on the outside, but also internally, 
then how is it possible that all the funds that we are giving, all the aid, all the supplies are going to them and not directly in some way, you know, I've never been a public servant, but I'm sure there is a way to assure that the money and the supplies go into the people who need them. My point about the NACPA earlier, though, was that whether or not it is Hamas in control of Gaza, the Palestinian people have a sense of grievance that goes back to the dispossession in 1948, even if it's not Israel's long-term plan to force them out of the current border areas. At the moment, they are being told, um, over a million people are being told to move or have been told to move because of the Israeli incursion. So whoever is in charge politically in Palestine, that sense of grievance, that sense of dispossession is allowed to grow, is allowed to metastasize. I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I think that the cycle that I've described of, you know, having this round of violence and then reconstruction. But what if I'm a, a Gazan citizen? What is my life experience? My life experience is bombs coming out of the sky, falling from the sky by Israel, destroying my house, probably killing some member of my family. And then Hamas attacking Israel, you know, saving my honor. And not only that, they're the ones that will deliver some goods or some water or some supplies because they're the ones that have it. And, you know, when Hamas states that they refer to the Nakba all the time, you know, they, uh, of course, it's a part of their agenda to go back to the territories and, and so on. So I think this cycle is counterproductive to Israel, and it's even counterproductive to the actual claims that Israel, that this government is making. Do you feel that Israel, in conducting attacks which will inevitably involve civilian death, in besieging Gaza and therefore inflicting grievous difficulties upon the civilian population, is guilty of a war crime, that it is in behaving like a terrorist? A war crime is a, uh, is a legal definition. And to be honest, I don't know enough about international law. I can tell you that I think morally, ethically, it's wrong. I can definitely tell you that I think it's not working in our interest. It's actually hurting Israel. And you have to remember, I've mentioned it before, when you speak to me, you know, I have a little Israeli right here on my shoulder listening. And I, I want to be talking to him as well. Because at the end of the day, this little Israeli needs to be somewhat convinced that Gaza is not just Hamas that the vast majority of people living there just want to live their lives. And this is why the messages that, that I try to convey are not purely ideological. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we lived in a perfect world, I could tell you, you know, that everyone should act this way or everyone should act that way. But we're not in a perfect world. We are very far 
on a perfect world. And it's very important for me that these people listen, that they are able to listen. And if I tell them that I am 100% sure that Israel is performing war crimes, I've lost these people. And I need them to listen to me. I need the Americans to listen to me. The Americans that are pro-Israel or we can, if you want, we can go into this definition of pro-Israel, which I, I don't like, but I, I would imagine that most listeners would, would understand what I mean. So I need these people that support Israel to keep listening. And if I'm being idyllic here and telling them, all right, Israel has, is not abiding by international law, you know, then their next response is going to be, what are you talking about? They decapitated babies. Are you talking about international law now? What are you talking about? Who cares about international law? And then the discussion is over. I am very careful with my verbiage. Sure, I understand that. And I want to make it clear that nothing that I'm saying in this conversation is intended in any way to excuse or justify the horrendous atrocities that you have referred to. They are utterly understood. And without in any way attempting to justify or excuse those things. Has there been a, a failure of civil society in Israel, a failure to maintain international norms of good behavior, the ways in which Israel, under its very right-wing government, has sought to expand its territory into areas that Palestinians post-1948 believe are theirs. Has there been a failure of Israeli society to acknowledge the long-term harm that that can cause them? A hundred percent, yes. If you're referring to the West Bank, to the Palestinian Authority, then a hundred percent, yes. I think that Israelis are so worn out on hearing about the Palestinians. They're so frustrated. They've been let down severely. And under Netanyahu, under his reign, where... Again, I believe that all he intends to do is just stick to power. And this is why he hasn't made any major moves, any bold moves that would better Israelis' lives. Israelis have completely forgotten about the Palestinian issue to the extent that, you know, in, in the last couple of years, we've had several rounds of, uh, of elections. In any of them, the Palestinian issue didn't even come to the table. None of the parties openly spoke about it because they knew they would lose votes. Nobody wants to hear about the Palestinians. And Israelis have stuck their heads in the sand for a very, very long time, completely ignoring what was going on in the West Bank, completely ignoring the fact that there are now 
armed militias of Jewish supremacists who are having pogroms in Pal uh, over Palestinians backed up by the IDF. And it's been happening for years and it's out in the open. And if you want to hear about it, all you have to do is actually want to hear about it. Even as an Israeli, when the mainstream media doesn't report it, it's not hard to find these news. But Israelis have been kicked around and punched around from every different angle, not just because of the Palestinian topic, but because of our own government, who's promoting itself, who's maintaining power by dividing Israeli society, by, you know, divide and conquer. That's, that's what they've been doing, by vilifying the Israeli left, by vilifying everyone that doesn't support Netanyahu. That this, this issue has just gone down the people's priorities, because many people are just interested in kind of day-to-day -day survival, not survival in, in the Gazan sense, but survival in making a living and try to, to have some fun in life and make sure that your salary is enough for the end of the month. I don't know if you know this, Israel is one of the top most expensive countries, the most expensive country in the OECD. So living in Israel is difficult. And in this past year, when the legal coup was, was being carried out by this government and all the protest movements rose to confront it, the Palestinian issue finally, finally came back into public discussion when it was clear that this is, in a way, the source of all evil. Because if Israelis have ignored the fact that there is a population that is disprivileged, that doesn't have basic human rights, that we are militarily controlling them, and they don't care about this, that there is no equality between the river and the sea, all of a sudden, they felt for themselves what it means. Because this government took the policies from the West Bank and began to try to impose them in Israel proper. And this is for the first time I've heard my friends that are leftists. And every time I bring up this issue of the Palestinians, you know, then it's complicated. Forget about it. Not now. We have other issues. For the first time, I have a friend who's, again, it's... It, it, She's a very much a leftist and a peacenik, but that, that was her usual response. And for the first time, she told me, now I get it. Now I understand what you were talking about. Udi, it's been really fascinating to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And you really do have our best wishes for the safe recovery of your cousin, Tal. I hope we Thank speak you, again. Thank you, Adrian. It would be my pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you so much. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. If you do want to support us, please take out a subscription. Head over to bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, thank you very much indeed. And just to say, we will, of course, be across the Israel-Gaza situation over the coming weeks and months and bringing you a range of voices and a range of perspectives. But thanks so much to Udi Gurun for sharing his story. And we really do wish peace for everybody in Israel and Gaza. Thank you so much for listening. We'll speak again soon. Thanks now. Bye-bye.